0: Greetings, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode number 241. And today I drove out to the east end of Long Island again, all the way out to Montauk. I think with the amount of hours I drove today, I could have been to like Virginia. But it was worth it. And it's always worth it going out to Montauk. There's so much cool stuff happening out there. Today, I went to the home of the artist, Seuss Lowenstein. She has done textile work, painting, and she makes incredible sculptures. You can actually go visit her if you put, actually, if you go to the notes for this episode, you'll find uh, a link to her website. But you can go check out The Grounds yourself, where a lot of her work is featured and probably her most famous work. I'm not going to talk too much about it because that's her story and she goes into depth in our conversation. But her most famous work is called Dark Elegy and it centers around the story of her son who in 1988 was on board the Pan Am Flight 103 that was taken down over Scotland. And it is heartbreaking, but at the same time, the work is incredibly beautiful. It's complicated. Now, this is a defining piece of work in her catalog, and obviously this is a defining moment in her life that she carries with her every day. But I wanted to hear about her whole life. She's incredibly well-traveled, has been to some fantastic places, she has a wealth of experience that you're about to hear about. It's truly an extraordinary life. And she has all sorts of beautiful work all around the grounds. I was fortunate enough to be given a tour of her workshop. And the current work that she's doing is uh, it's really cool. So I felt incredibly fortunate to get to meet her today and to spend time with her and to see her work. I won't describe it anymore because this is a really great conversation and she and I will do that throughout the conversation. But if you're ever out in Montauk, please reach out to her and give her a visit. I really recommend it. She's not far from the Boneyard. It's like right down the road actually where you can get Wellbone Magazine and hang out and get some snacks. She's a 10-minute drive from the Ditch Witch where you can get some amazing food in Ditch Plains. So you can make a whole day of it. So again, go to the notes in whatever player, the description, in whatever player you're listening to this to, and you'll find links to her incredible work. There will also be a link to my Patreon account, and that's where you can give monthly and get some cool kickbacks, like stickers and shirts and zines and stuff from around the world. We have just two days here before we are heading out to Iceland. It's going to be my first time there. I'm very, very excited. Uh, I had thought maybe I'd have two episodes coming to you before that trip, but it will just be this one. So please enjoy this conversation with Suze Lowenstein. Well, first of all, thank you so much. This is an incredibly beautiful place where we are sitting Overlooking Dark Elegy, I'm sure, is a place with a lot of emotion and a lot of memories, uh, and I just I really appreciate being here. So thank you. You're quite welcome. And I went through your um, list of like media and appearances and, and interviews, and it is incredibly extensive. Some of the largest media outlets in the world have covered you, so. It's really an honor to be here. Um, I'm really happy that that you said yes. So again. Oh, of course. And I have to say, it's the very first interview
1: with a podcaster. I am basically not too familiar with your media,
0: but uh, I felt, uh, why not? And here you are. Oh, perfect. I'm happy to be your first. Actually, that always makes me like extra happy when, when someone says I'm the first podcast. So. I'm sure it will not be the last, so thank you. <laughs> okay. Um, you were born in Germany, right? That's correct. Whereabouts? Uh,
1: it was outside of Berlin. At, at the time, it became the, uh, the uh, eastern, the Russian-occupied uh, section of Germany. But then my mother fled with uh, her three three. At that point, three children to the to the west, and that's where I grew up in Hamburg. In Hamburg, how long were you in Hamburg for? I was in Hamburg probably from the age of two until uh, twenty, when I left.
0: Um, how was the experience growing up there?
1: Oh, I loved it. You know, kids are kids are funny. Kids don't really ever stop to think. Wait a minute. What is this really like? You just, it's life, that's what you know, and that's what you don't question. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember how we, you know, we had, after the war, we sat in uh, tenements that, uh, where the apartment was shared by three or four families, and the children had to gather in the kitchen to uh, take the maggots out of the rice. And, you know, we, we flicked them around into each other's faces. <laughs> oh, so we had fun. I can't even say how horrible it was, mm-hmm. but that's what I mean. Kids don't question it. When they were three kids in one bed, that was it. Right. And that's uh, that's sort of my very early childhood. And then there were still unexploded bombs in the in uh, bombed-out tenements, which were our playgrounds. And there were terrible explosions at times with, with kids being killed. And, you know, so it was interesting, and I remember that uh, in my first school years, I got uh, food from the Americans. The Americans would come with huge containers of pea soup, and uh, we were fed pea soup in school, and that was oftentimes the only meal that we had.
0: Wow. Was there a point early in life where you took to art and creative endeavors? Very much so. I was always, how should I
1: phrase this, I was always an oddball. I never really fit in. Uh, I felt I didn't really fit into any particular group of kids, I did my own thing. And if I wanted to crawl into myself, which I did quite frequently, I would create just things out of branches, I would draw, I would shape, I would even carve shoes out of wood. We didn't have shoes, so I would carve, you know, the Dutch kind of clogs. Yeah. I did that, got some severe blisters, but nevertheless, so I did from childhood on, and I was not a good student because I simply couldn't sit down and and, uh, learn math in particular, so... I had very, very understanding teachers, thank God, who allowed me to draw, create huge murals in the school halls instead of sitting in the classroom, which I couldn't do anyway. I was always a disturbance and um,
0: whatever. So school was not a, not a good thing for me. Yeah, I was going to ask if art was embraced culturally in Hamburg at the time. No, no. Mm. No, I wouldn't say no. They were, you know,
1: Germany was extremely poor at that time. It was still the years after the war, uh, where people, like I mentioned before, would would be in, in tenements, three, four families per per apartment, and uh, no, it was it, it was the living space and food mm. that was of 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 interest. And then later, uh, when things uh, be, became more normal, so to speak, where people had their own homes and apartments, etc. cetera, um, then there was room to think about other things like uh, like art. Mm. And I was always into art, always, but uh, I grew up in a family that didn't appreciate art, that didn't really know what to do with art. It's not something you can learn, earn your money from, um, what do you do with art? So my father thought I should be a flower arranger in a, in a flower shop, you know, make bouquets of flowers. So that was his, his thinking of, uh, of creativity in art. And needless to say, <laughs> that, that is not what I had in mind. Uh, and um, then I finished school and I finished the lowest kind of school that you could possibly have in Germany before being brain ill or something like that. And uh, then I wanted to go to the University of Fine Arts. But with my schooling, there was no way that I could, would be accepted. So my father, who was a school principal, pulled a few strings and I was allowed to test alone at the school for an entire week which I did and uh, I tested fabulously so they accepted me and the only shortcoming was that I was 3-4 years younger than everybody else because I missed the 4 additional high school yeah. years but I finished uh, the, 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 the fine arts uh, university, school, whatever with flying
0: colors with a diploma and uh, here I am I find that so interesting because I've had a number of artists on the podcast. And even just uh, like five days ago, I was recording with a man. We were talking about travel. Yes. He has worked and traveled in places that people now travel to, like Malawi and Kuwait. But um, at the time, in like the 60s, they were very different places. And he has an incredible woodworking uh, garage workshop there. And I was like, wow, this is beautiful. And he said, yeah, my father was carving and my grandfather, they were carving things out of gold without training or anything like that. And I can see, okay, you've acquired probably part of this through the gene pool, through genetics. Have you ever been able to trace back like, well, I had a grandparent who was artistic or who did craftsmanship or anything like that? Absolutely nobody. Wow. Absolutely nobody. That made me even more of an oddball.
1: Yeah. You know, because nobody could say, oh, she's got this from auntie so-and-so. There was no auntie so-and-so who was talented or an uncle. So I was the first uh, who who was creative in art. And uh, eventually I became an artist. There
0: was just no choice. There was really no choice. At that time, did you ever envision this level of, I don't know if you want to call it success. Well, what I see as success is like actually being able to pursue your craft throughout your life, because there's so many people who have a skill or a creative endeavor, and it isn't the thing that becomes their job. It's their side hobby. It's not something they can monetize or, you know, it's not their day-to-day reality in terms of work. Did you ever envision like, okay, I'm going to be down a path where I will be able to do this for my whole life? You know, I never questioned it. I just did it. Mm. I really never questioned
1: it. And I was very fortunate uh, to marry a husband who supported it Mm. and who was financially able to support it because that's a huge thing in an artist's life. Uh, I mean, the cost to create something like this alone is thousands and thousands of dollars. And... uh, I never had to work in order to create. I I had the magnificent freedom to create, period.
0: Are you very fortunate. Very fortunate. (laughs) And very rare for an artist. I'm really curious about how you ended up in Colombia and what your experiences there were.
1: Well, that was a
0: great, great
1: time in my life. I was there for almost a whole year, and I was there because my father being a school principal basically works for the German government. Um, That's the way the schools work. And uh, at that time, the Germans felt so guilty after the war that they wanted to do good everywhere. Mm. And so they decided to to go into underdeveloped countries like Colombia to build vocational schools. In my father's case, in particular uh, auto mechanics as well as um, uh, air f- f- uh, airplane mechanics. And uh, when I finished uh, art school, I went to, to 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 see what it's like. And I loved it. I had my first art exhibit there. I lived in Barranquilla, which was at the mouth of the Rio Magdalena. And, uh, oh, I just loved it. And the only thing was you were very limited. At my at that time, you could not walk around anywhere as a single woman, leave alone a blonde one, uh, without being harassed by the male population. And so I always had this muchacha behind me. <laughs> but, you know, we did what we had to do. And uh, the art exhibit f- made me feel good. I made friends and uh, went on an expedition into the jungle of Choco which was at that time one of the most unpenetrated um, jungles in the world. It still is to a great degree and it was unbelievable. Sleeping on banana boats, sleeping on hammocks in the, in the jungle and seeing Indians who had never seen white people and who fed us things to this day, I have no idea what, that, what it was. And in their huts, they had all these little uh, hand-carved airplanes. And that meant that they saw the airplanes in the air and they thought they were gods. So they carved them and hung them in in their houses to be blessed, protected, whatever, by these little gods. So that, my year in Colombia was great. And then my father one day said, you know, you gotta go back to Germany and start living a life and earn money. Well, I got off in New York and never took the second stretch from New York to to, to Germany. Really? I'm basically a runaway kid because I couldn't fathom going back to Germany. And uh, in Germany, it was a little different when you were a little different. You know, people thought nothing of pointing their hands at you and, and, and laughed because I made my own clothes and you know I looked a little different. So so anyway. So I, I couldn't couldn't think of going back. So I came to New York and I had a few names and addresses that friends in Colombia gave me. And I had five hundred dollars to my name. So through these friends, uh, I I became somewhat settled in the city. Uh, I lived in a basement apartment on 84th Street between um, Central Park West and Columbus Avenue, and there were grits in the floor, and every time a subway came, it rattled. It was, went straight into the subway shafts, and the police came every morning knocking on the on the windows to make sure I was okay. And then again, through the uh, friends in Colombia that uh, suggested some of their friends in New York, I went to a dinner party where I met my husband. And six months later, we were married. And we were married for 53 years. And sadly, sadly, he died oh. just three years ago. He so was shy. really a, a, a wonderful, wonderful husband.
0: That trip into the jungle in Colombia, did you do any work or sketching? Or is there any work that was like inspired by that trip?
1: None. Wow. I just...
0: Sucked it all up. I mean,
1: I was really interested and, and and engaged, but I did not put I'm I'm very I never do that anyway. Mm. Even with this work, I never draw it beforehand. I make little models maybe. But oftentimes I, I work right on the on, on the final piece. What was the work that you showed at that first exhibit? Um, this is interesting. In Germany, in art schools you have to take in fine art schools, you have to take two disciplines, a fine art which you want to do and a, an art with which to support yourself. Mm. So I did uh, textile designs and these were textile designs for decorative fabrics, big designs like uh, curtains, uh, bedspreads, shower curtains, rugs, that kind of thing. And often, oftentimes they were very painterly. And so that's what I exhibited.
0: I've looked at some of your textile designs online, and they're really, they're really beautiful, and they're really colorful and vibrant. Right. I'm going to, obviously, in a little bit, we'll, we'll talk about Dark Elegy, but I was a massive uh, Anthony Bourdain fan. I'm always talking oh, yeah, about him. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so my partner Leslie and I, we went to see the documentary about his life that's out right now, Roadrunner. Right. Um, which was honestly like the, the final third was really heartbreaking. Um, and also part of it was really inspiring. It was beautiful. But th- there's an artist in it named David Cho, who I also am a pretty big fan of. And he said in that, and I, I've, I've heard other people talk about that, the best art, and obviously that's subjective, so the best art in his opinion comes from darkness and, and pain and, and Places of struggle, and I, I can see that there is pain in some of your work. But then, when I look at the textile design, I see like joy and happiness. And maybe that's just how I'm interpreting it. But can you create in sort of like any sort of mindset? Is, or is there anything to what he's saying, where like it, it comes from? It is easier
1: to create when 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 there is drama and pain mm. and heartbreak. Uh, that to me that was like like it, it, dark allergy for example, it came by itself. With, while with other pieces I have to struggle a little bit. Uh, sometimes an idea comes and it's like the little dancer that I just showed you. I mean it's a no-brainer that you know this is what that piece of wood wanted to be and that's what it became. Uh, but I do find it easier, especially with Dark allergy, which is so, so unique uh, in the way that it was created and so authentic because it's me and, and hundreds and thousands of women who go through the same thing. Uh, so it was also a, a way of staying sane, to be honest. If I didn't have this, I'd, I don't know if I'd be sitting here talking to you today. I probably would have done away with me, with myself. Wow. Uh, because this was so horrific, absolutely. The entire Pan M 103 story was so horrific. From beginning till end, the unfairness, the uh, the cruelty, the idea that our kids fell six and a half miles, just their bodies, I mean, it's unthinkable.
0: Is Is it okay to for us to explain what we're talking about to to listeners? Yes, absolutely, because
1: uh, that is reality, and Mm -hmm. I don't believe hiding reality. That's not me. So your son was a student in... Alexander was a student at Syracuse University, and Syracuse University has a school in London that is used by many universities throughout the world and United States. So the school in London does not only have Syracuse students, but students from other universities as well. And uh, so many kids take half a semester abroad, abroad, and so did Alexi. Sorry, I'm
0: just untangling the <laughs> wire from your you feet. And okay. so
1: did Alexi And uh, he was basically on his way home. Uh, when the um, pen M103 exploded he was 21 years old and uh, I think his time in London was the best time of his life
0: Mm.
1: and uh, he sat in a row where in row 20 there's actually a film out about, I don't know if you've seen that I haven't it's called C20D it's on Amazon Prime Uh, So he sat there and the plane broke open right in front of him. So he was one of the first to fall. And just his body, he wasn't even, you know, some kids were found still strapped in their seats, but it's just his body fell. And I'll be grateful to say and be grateful forever that he was intact Mm. when we got him back because a lot of people got a hand. Or a head, or it's just hor- terrible. Uh, airplane victims don't fall pretty. They, they, it's, it's, it's a, it's a horror show. So you know, these are the things that we ended up being grateful for. I mean, it's, it's, it's bizarre, to say the least. And for a while, we didn't know if we ever got anything back from him because a lot of people did not, because uh, the people were incinerated in the wreckage. But we did, and I think it was the beginning of January that we received him back at Kennedy Airport. And that was another horror show. You know, we were asked by Pan Am to be there at a certain time, which we did. And uh, it turned out to be the livestock quarantine section at Kennedy Airport, where we received our loved ones Mm -hmm. back. And Alexei came in a truck that was filthy and spray painted and they opened up the back and I think there must have been like 24, 25 caskets in there. And that's how we got him back in the livestock quarantine section at Kennedy Airport. It is unconscionable.
0: Was there like a a media presence because of the No media presence. Okay. No. Should have been. Just to
1: to know for the future, I have to add that Am 103 was the first great crash and tragedy with which the State Department had to deal with. And they had no clue how to deal with it. And they're they're the first to admit it. They've come a long way. So if something like Am 103 happens today, the victims' families will be treated differently.
0: Mm. Was... Was there ever anyone who is identified and to be responsible?
1: Oh, yes. Uh, Colonel Gaddafi. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, and there was a, uh, uh, the, the, the families were paid money from Gaddafi.
0: Wow. So that was basically his admittance of guilt. I read an interview with you where you talked about receiving your son's jacket and how you would weld in his jacket. Do yes. you still have it?
1: I have my jacket. It's in the studio. And until the day I die, it'll always be there. And yes, when I weld, I'll add a few more holes to that jacket because I got it back with a few ja- few holes hmm. uh, from, from the fires. I don't know where exactly it was found. But uh, yes, I have it and I use it.
0: I'm going to ask you about... Uh, I'm going to say piece, The very multiple pieces here. When I, I'm obsessive with this podcast, um, I'm not NPR, I'm not someone that makes money off of it. I was just talking to, this is going to be a very long aside. I was just talking to my dad. My dad retired to Maryland and he does a radio show. Mm-hmm. And he was saying, you know, I reached out to a few people and I haven't heard a response and that's kind of frustrating. And I was telling him, you know, th- there's not, there's not five hours of my day that goes by where I'm not reaching out to people. So right. don't worry about that. The success rate usually is like 10% and even getting a response. But my point being, I spend hours and hours sending hundreds of messages out. So I'm always looking for interesting people. I love coming out to Montauk. Uh, I grew up in Suffolk, so as a... Late teenager, we would come out for the day. We couldn't afford a hotel here, Um, so we would drive back. So I have fond memories of that, and so I have no problem making the trip out. I love this. And I was looking for artists out here, of which there are many, and I saw your work, and I didn't know the story. I knew nothing. But when I saw these very larger-than-life female characters, I thought maybe they were fertility goddesses. It reminded me of the figurines that were shown to like worship uh, or even celebrate, I guess, um, uh, reproduction in African right. societies. Uh, and they look very much as if they were carved out of clay. Um, that's not necessarily the case. So I was wondering if you could talk about uh, the actual process and what they're made out of and then again what it, what it represents.
1: Well, I, you know, I started out as a fine arts painter. I never w- was schooled uh, as a sculptor. So what you see there is all self-learned, and uh, by trial and error, I ended up with, with what you see here. Um, I learned welding, which was a necessity because each figure has a very intricate um Steel armature inside, which then is wrapped many, many times with chicken wire. And or chicken wire is a wonderful material because you can crimp it, make it, crimp it, and pull it. So already you can put the shapes of an arm or breasts or a stomach um, into the chicken wire. Then it gets injected with foam, and the foam, of course, comes all over through the chicken wire. So it gets carved back to the contour of the chicken wire. Mm. And mind you, this is all stuff that I taught myself because I learned that you cannot have hollow sculptures with this material outdoors because the heat in the summer and the cold in the winter, that which contracts, results in cracking. So that's why I had to inject them with foam to make them solid. Oh, and then on top of the chicken wire, I start modeling with my stone material. I have to, it's a certain mixture. It has to be the right ratio with fiberglass in it. And then the last layers are, uh, there's the pigment in as well. And uh, then it is finished with a mesh, with a fiberglass mesh, which has no... No meaning other than that these figures are uh, symbolically held together so that they don't fall apart, Mm. uh, which we all were close to doing anyway, and and many of us did. Uh, But that's the the reason for the mesh that you see. The coloring has uh, meaning as well. We are all made different. Some of us fall apart easier. Others are more robust in in their makeup, in their in their feelings, and the darker ones are the more robust ones in their emotional makeup, and the light ones are the more fragile ones. So basically everything has a meaning in this piece. And these are representative of the parents of the victims on the flight? It's mostly mothers, but there are also some sisters and some grandmothers and some aunts. And interestingly, no men came. They were invited as well. But they didn't come. Ever? Ever. Why do you think that is? Well, first of all, men of that generation... Do not like to show their emotions. Mm. Thank God that has somewhat changed with the younger generation. I mean, it's okay today to to fall apart emotionally and cry. It's it's accepted. Right. It was maybe not quite accepted then, and this is basically how the, the the women portrayed themselves the very moment that they heard that their loved one died. And then after ten or twelve or fifteen women were created, it would have been enormously cra- uh, courageous. For the first guy to come out and say, "I want to be part of this, too." yeah, and so they they were more into seeking justice and the political um, uh, arena that surrounded the Panama uh, three. So that's why I think the guys didn't come in. I was never approaching them face to face. I never wanted to put someone in a position where they had to explain to me why they would or would not want to be part of this. Did the women come here to this property? No, I lived in New Jersey at the time, so a lot of them came to New Jersey. I visited a lot of them in their homes. And uh, by the time we moved here, it was all already uh, uh, in a finished process. At that point, I was not accepting anymore. Hmm. Did you take photographs of the women, or this is all from memory? No, I took photographs from the women. First of all, that was another symbol, uh, symbolism in it, the fact that they're all nude. I did that because we were stripped, stripped truly of everything that was dear to us, that we knew, that was uh, that was known to us, and we were all the same. Mm-hmm. And when you strip people and you see them just in their bodies, they're all the same. And that was very important because... We had uh, uh, black people, uh, Asian people. We had a a vast variety of nationalities Mm -hmm. and uh, cultures. So that was my way of of,
0: uh, making us all equal. You have a a collage in your workspace. Your workspace is so beautiful. (laughs) Um, And the collage is beautiful itself. And the hairdos kind of give away uh, the the era, right? Yes. Um, Do you... Keep in touch with any of those women? Do they reach out to you?
1: Oh, yes, absolutely. And uh, oftentimes they like to visit and they bring flowers and put it down on their figure. And this is very important to them. And uh, uh, if you go back into the studio, you see small plaster figures. They are the ones that were done first from the photograph because I needed to get familiar with the... uh, particular body language and character of each particular person that came to me and I would do that with a small plaster figure and then sometimes when the figure was a little boring based on the little one I would tweak it a little put a little bit more tension in make it a little bit more interesting and then when the big one is finished they get the women get their little one oh that's amazing and they cherish the little one they all have special places in their homes you know, and it's a sweet thing to see. It's a very sweet thing to see, but to go back to the nudity, um, I requested that the women get undressed to a point with which they were comfortable. I could not have the the fact that they were nude come between between being uncomfortable and what the position of their bodies actually were when they heard. So some kept some clothing on, others did not. Some came in a bathing suit. But for me as an artist, it was vitally important to see as much of the body as I could because it's a language, it's a landscape, it tells me. And if I don't see it, I have to make it up and I don't always can do justice. Wow.
0: This is uh, open for people to come, I guess, book an appointment with you to see, or...?
1: No, uh, this, this garden is open to the public every day from 10 until 12, all year long.
0: Do you notice that people come for their own reason? Like, do people have like, cathartic emotional experiences coming here oh, to see? Oh, God, it? yes. I,
1: I have seen men break down. I don't usually come out because I don't... I feel I put in a different angle. That's not necessarily... Ne- that's not necessary. Uh, I, I. Everything I have to say to people is right here. Mm. There's nothing that I can add. So I think I'm just more of an interference than a help for people.
0: I see. Did doing this work provide you with any sort of catharsis or closure or, um, I don't even know really what the word would be. Did it, did it help you? It kept me alive. Yeah. Very simple. Oh, you were saying, yeah. It yeah. kept me
1: alive. When that boy was killed, I thought my life was finished. I couldn't imagine going on without one of, one of my children being not only dead and killed, but murdered. You know, these are murder victims. Yeah. Let's not forget. And he was the most harmless, playful, innocent, beautiful boy you can imagine. Why? You know, it's politics as usual. Yeah. And and many, many victims in between. But uh, I first created myself in varying poses of grief. There's anger, there's hate of who did it. And... Uh, and incredible, incredible sadness. And uh, then I noticed at our Pan m 103 meetings, which we had almost immediately, there was this one woman that was so regal and so, uh, how should I say, so special, the way she carried her grief. And I figured maybe I can ask her to to participate in, in, in Dark Elegy, and I did, and she loved the idea. And while I asked her, another woman who, whose daughter was on Pan 3 overheard this and asked me if she could also participate. And boom, that's when I figured, oh my God, if I could have as many of them as possible, that would be an incredible mm-hmm. memorial to all that we've lost. And that's how this basically was created. And we had a little newsletter, and I put a blurb into the newsletter describing what I was doing and inviting everyone who would want to contact me, again, because I would never want to do what I did with the first one, to do face-to-face asking, because I thought it was inappropriate, basically.
0: Mm.
1: And uh, this is the result. Approximately how long would a single figure take to make? With a good assistant or two, about a month and months and a half. Wow! But so I really dragged it out because, like I said, it, this was my sanity for yeah. a long time. And this is so. This is years and years. Yes, more. fifteen
0: years. Unbelievable.
1: I did other things too in that time, and I I traveled a lot during that time too. But from beginning to end, this was
0: fifteen years. I'm gonna switch topics for a second you referenced a conversation that we had in your workshop that I think is really interesting talking about the the roots that look as if they are dancing and you said this is the pose that they wanted to be in I think somebody who maybe doesn't have your mind is going to say well roots can't talk to you they don't tell you Uh, I can't recall exactly where I read this but I remember reading in a book an artist talking about ideas and how, where does that come from? Like what is planting that seed? Um, I'm wondering if you have any sort of insight into that or like what exactly do you mean when you say that the, the roots wanted to be in that position? Well, it speaks to me. Mm. It lets me know.
1: And uh, yeah, it's very simple. And uh, if I need to create something that doesn't speak to me where that I have to make, make something out of it that then, in the end, does mean something and speak. It's not as close to my heart as something that where well, boom, immediately I know what that's going to be, mm. or it comes into my head, but I can't tell you where it's coming from. It just it, it just comes. I love it when that happens. Oh my god, I love it. I love
0: it. I read a lot. I'm a really big uh, science fiction fan, um, like fantasy, magical realism. In looking at a lot of your work, and it, maybe it's just the lens that I'm looking at it through, but I I see that uh, I was telling you that Untitled, with There's three heads arranged in a circle, is one of my favorites of the work that I was researching before I came here, and it makes me think of something futuristic, almost like the Godhead, like the Emperor, and they've they've been fallen. Um, I'm not going to ask you what that means, but... You know, you are almost right on. Really? Yes. These, this is what I felt for Gaddafi.
1: Really? Cutting his heads off again and again and again. Wow. That's really amazing. Wow. Okay. <laughs> um, they don't look like him, but that—that that is the initial feeling uh, wow.
0: before I created them. Well. That, that's that that threw me for a loop. I wasn't I expecting see. that. It's yeah. It's leaving you speechless. <laughs> well, I think maybe less so in the meaning of the work, but the actual physical imagery. I guess what I was getting at is a lot of it feels to me like imageries of a, a imagery from a a storybook or a graphic novel. Were were there any particular artists or pieces of work or books or mediums that were particularly influential on you when you were developing your style? Well,
1: one, I'm, I'm a great, great admirer of Rodin. He is one of my kings. Mm. He was such, such a fantastic artist. And then there, uh, there's Magdalena Ab- Abakanowicz. She is an Eastern European uh, uh, female artist creating figures like this out of burlap. Also huge groups of people. Uh, She's she's one of my idols. Mm. And there, there are many others, but I would say that those two are on top. Okay.
0: Obviously, New York City is a place that is his well, historically I guess, kind of always embraced the outsider and the other. <laughs> Quite literally in the sense that, you know, that's where Ellis Island was. That is where many immigrants passed through as the portal to the United States. Right. But, you know, I grew up on on I grew up in Suffolk in a place that to me felt very conservative, to me feeling like an outsider in many ways as well. And my friends, like New York City was the place to go, it was sort of like th- the fortress of solitude for um, for outsiders, for for creative sites, right. for punks, for that's exactly what I was told in Colombia, which is
1: why I got off the plane in New York. <laughs> Were, did you feel embraced early on? Well, I certainly was helped uh, uh, by interesting. German Jews that had to leave Germany mm. under the worst of circumstances and these were the very people that helped me I'm I'm Christian I'm not Jewish uh, and that that will be forever in my head but that could be called being embraced uh, because yeah. they gave me my start you know they, they laid out money so I could buy a, a drawing board and paints and paper and and uh, they sold my textile designs in the beginning. Uh, so that I was called embrace, em, being embraced. And then this piece, Dark Allergy, is, a, is, a, is an enigma. People love it. People come and, and look, at, look at it and, and thank me from here to elsewhere for having created it, but nobody wants it. I'm ready to give it away. Really? Nobody wants it. Why do you think that is? I have no clue. Well, I have a little bit of a clue. First of all, it takes a lot of space. Secondly, the way the figures are right now, you could not publicly exhibit them because they're not anchored in the ground and therefore somewhat dangerous for kids dangling on the arms or climbing up. Uh, it, they could easily fall over and, and hurt a person. Hmm. But still, it would be a gift, but it could be a foundation that would cast it in bronze, which means it would automatically have the under uh, structure to secure the pieces so that they wouldn't fall off. But uh, we tried Washington, D.C., and were deeply insulted by the people of the Park Service. They felt this was dirty. You know, they saw the sexual... They told us that that, uh, unwelcome individuals would go there at night and perform sexual acts with these figures.
0: That seems like such an American viewpoint. (laughs) That is ridiculous. Wow. And uh, we offered it
1: several places. And then the biggest blow was Syracuse University, who lost 35 kids, uh, it was exhibited there, but uh, when I offered it to them, they declined it. And when they declined it, I said, "Forget it." If they decline it, mm. who would want it? So then we created this private space here. But I'm not alive forever, and my son Lucas—he, uh, I wanted to put it into my will. I can and, and leave it to someone. But uh, Lucas uh, was not fond of the idea and he would rather, he inherits it and then sees where he can, Hmm. what he can do with it. So that's right now what's going to happen.
0: Wow. I'm really, I'm really curious about this part of New York right here, the, the east end of Long Island. Uh, again, it like I have a lot of romantic feelings about it because of nostalgia. Yeah. But I'm – and I had this conversation a little bit when I was over at, at Grain Surfboards with the, the gentleman I was telling you about in that if people hear the Hamptons – and I'm kind of calling this whole area like Montauk and the Hamptons. But they'll think of you know, famous people and giant homes and movie stars and things like that and they hear of Hamptons parties – but at the same time, to me, there's also this like deep artist community. There's a lot of people doing really creative industries and sustainability. There, there's a company out here like mulching up kelp for yeah. uh, for lawn and gardens and things like that. There are like surf therapy groups, things that are really amazing to me. is sort of this almost like duality of of, of types. I'm wondering how it has been to be. An artist out here on the east end of Long Island and if you've found community and if you've been embraced out here
1: no, no because I'm a loner I'm still a loner hmm. and uh, I really have very little contact with other artists really yeah Not by choice uh, well maybe by choice I don't mm. I, you know what I don't have the friggin time yeah to socialize much. You know, I'm I'm on. I'm 77 now, and I get tired. I'm i I come seven o'clock. I like to sit and read a book or listen to music. I I'm am t- not going to any party, and and schmooze around. I it's just not me. It's never mm. been me. It's certainly not now. Yeah. Are you? Do you work every day? No. No, I go a lot of car- I go kayaking. I go uh, biking. I have a nice bike. I go for an hour or two, very early in the morning before the cars come out and ride my bike. And uh, no, I'm I'm
0: still a loner. Just I've always been like that. Wow, even with I, I'm assuming a lot of people come out. To oh yeah, yeah, but
1: like I said, I don't mingle. Yeah, it
0: would be interesting if. I don't know. I, I know you said you don't particularly want to know sort of the reason why everyone is seeing it, but like a... No, be- it's, not, it's not that I don't want to know. I
1: just think that I would be interfering uh, with the viewer. I see, yeah. Because, you know, they all want to know how, what, and where, and no matter how you twist it, you are, you're really interfering with their own imagination and thought process, mm-hmm. and I don't want to do that.
0: I see. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Are you, um, are there any particular pieces or ideas or projects that you're working on now that people can expect to see in the future?
1: Well, like I said, I'm working with the firewood with balls um, for lack of uh, another idea at the moment. And I'm, getting a kick out of it only because I'm doing, I'm making something out of absolutely nothing and I think that's terrific Yeah, uh, that's something new, I, I don't think I've ever done, created something out of absolutely nothing you know, it's stuff you burn, you make a fire out of it, it's in your fireplace and here I'm making
0: a sculpture out of it so I enjoy that yeah, and it's quite beautiful too, I, we were chatting about this before as well And I thought your perspective was really interesting. I I was mentioning to you, I've traveled a lot through Southeast Asia and you have a piece with some Buddha heads that kind of, look like the Buddha is depicted differently in different cultures. These to me remind me of like the Thai depiction. Mm -hmm. Um, And I had asked you if you were Buddhist and I'm wondering if you could share that because I thought that was really interesting. Well, I'm not a Buddhist and I'm not...
1: uh I don't believe in any religion Buddhism may not be a religion but rather a a, a a philosophy or a way of living or thinking however if ever I had to choose any belief I would choose Buddhism mm. because it's quiet it's peaceful it's It doesn't seem to make all these financial demands that almost every other religion uh, demands. And there's just something beautiful about the Eastern culture that includes Buddhism. Mm. I've also traveled quite extensively in Thailand and Malaysia and Singapore, Hong Kong, and... uh, been privy to ceremonies, Buddhist ceremonies with the monks. and I loved it. it was it was very welcoming, inclusive. Uh, and so that is where those pieces came from. And then i I elaborated on the very old antique basis, which in itself is a history. There's history there. and then the peaceful Buddha heads, and then, uh, then came the Trump era with all the turmoil, and and that's what the roots depict on the on the monks' heads. Where were you in Malaysia? I was in Kuala Lumpur, and then we uh, we took trips along the the oh, what was it called the South South China Sea. What was it called? Beautiful beaches. Ah, but I've mostly Kuala Lumpur because my husband had. Uh,
0: business there. Oh, okay. Did you do any work over there while you were in Southeast no, Asia? No,
1: I didn't, but I soaked it in. Yeah. I mean the the impressions and the smells and yeah.
0: the, the sounds, especially in the big cities. Oh. I really love that you said that because I've tried to explain this to some people, but and and not to say every Southeast Asian city is the same, but there there's actually a smell like in a place like Saigon, Ho Chi Minh City. Oh, I've been there too. Fantastic! It's, uh, it's one of my favorite yes. places in the world. Yes. The smell actually isn't really a pleasant smell. No, but it is what it is. I mean, it belongs there. And it is intoxicating when you yes. go back there. Yes. You're like, mm mm-hmm, I know where I am. It's yes. so strange. And I would always, uh, my favorite places were the
1: markets. Yes. I love the markets, and ah. Uh, oh, North Vietnam was terrific. I never ventured to South Vietnam, but um, North Vietnam, we traveled extensively also uh, by car, towered the South, but not all the way to
0: Saigon. Did you get to see Halong Bay
1: in the North? Yes. Unbelievable, right? (sighs) Amazing, amazing. Yeah. It's so, so, yeah, I I mean... I can just go back to them. I just soak it in. I don't have time to draw or f- even photograph. It never,
0: sh- it never shows you the way it really was because it doesn't smell. <laughs> yeah. To me, Halong Bay, it, it, it's timeless in the sense that like you don't see any like cultural markings of the time period you're in. But it, it feels to me as if I was like dropped into. An ancient time, like it sounds so corny, yes. but you almost expect to see a, a dinosaur pop up or yeah, something back like. But all oh, the humps, yeah, exactly.
1: It's 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 fantastic, and I would say a long time ago, uh, probably before all the 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 uh, travel agents groups yeah. came, and uh, there was a lot more local boating going on, and we even stayed over a couple of nights. In in a bigger boat, it was it was remarkable, really remarkable. And what I always liked too were the monasteries everywhere. I mm-hmm. loved the monasteries. Did you take photos or document during this period at all? Or I probably have it, but you know, this is all paper photography. You're talking about not not in, in the uh, right. <laughs> it was very different, and then uh, slides. But how do you show hundreds of slides these days? Ah, you know, I know. It's, it's Peter was an avid photographer. Underwater, we were really avid scuba divers. Yeah, in Papua New Guinea
0: primarily. No way. Yeah. What? What? Like what time period was that? Were you there? This was in the early '80s. Unbelievable! What was it like there at the time? Ugh,
1: oh, one one generation removed from from headhunters and and. People eaters. We actually bought a cookbook at the time:
0: "How to Cook Men." <laughs> <laughs> I think that's in a Twilight Zone episode. Actually, wow, that's really fascinating. Yeah, we had—I
1: think we went five times, and we would always live on a on a, a dive boat, but we would uh, visit visit different tribes, and we would always bring presents, you know, like uh, milk powder or whatever, and and you know they would be so sweet the kids especially they would come and if you had a rubber band around your wrist they were fascinated because they didn't know what that was and then you would snap it and it would hurt a little bit and so we gave out rubber bands and on and on and on and um, I it was magnificent
0: I didn't know all this did have you ever uh, traveled at all in Africa
1: Yes, uh, as a matter of fact, I'm going with my grandson on September 30th for three weeks.
0: Where are you going? Uh,
1: This time I'm going to uh, first. I start out in Dubai because I think that just has to be seen. The craziness in in Dubai just has to be seen, and from there we go to Tanzania and then to Kenya, and we'll finish up in uh, at the Diani Beach. I've okay, yeah, um, by Mombasa. Deflate, unbelievable.
0: Oh. One of the, before I ever had guests, I would tell my silly travel stories. And I, very short way of telling the story, I stepped on a sea urchin at Diani when I ran oh. out. To, and there's a woman who had to like perform a, a <laughs> makeshift surgery on my foot with a fishing hook to pull the, oh. the spines. It was oh. wild, but. That is painful. Beautiful place. Yes. Yes. Have you been to Kenya before?
1: Yes, okay. I've been to Kenya with my granddaughter, I give this as, as graduation presents. Oh, that's amazing. You know, my, my, my grandkids can choose wherever they want to go. No way. Every time there was a milestone in, in our grandchildren's lives, we gave uh, trips of their choice. Of course, we helped a little bit with Africa. Uh, my husband and I both, he was still alive when we went to Botswana. A few years back. That was great. And then my granddaughter in 18 uh, graduated Syracuse and we went also to to Tanzania and uh, uh, Kenya. And my grandson, Jamie, graduated Syracuse uh, last year, but it was delayed because of the pandemic. And now we are booked for the 30th of September.
0: What did you do in Botswana?
1: Same thing. Look around, see the elephants and just you know, And we do it in a very private way. No mm. big tour. I'm not a big tour person. Same. And so, you know, it would just be the four of us. And, and with my grandkids, it's just the two of us. One jeep, nobody else in there, one guide. And we'll sleep under the stars and do all these magnificent things.
0: Have you ever written it all? I no. mean, because I would love to read a memoir of your travels. Like, that's incredible. <laughs> you
1: know something I just said to Lucas, my son? I should really write down my memoirs because I had a very, very rich life. And starting, you know, my beginnings, when I think where I'm coming from, it's just unbelievable. I've been so, so fortunate. I've been incredible. I had a great husband, great kids. Alexi, until he died, was a terrific kid. Lucas, a wonderful one. He just left yesterday. Wonderful son. And the grandkids, I'm very close with all three of them. I
0: think maybe we put a pin in it there because that's a beautiful way to to wrap up the conversation. I think. Again, thank you. This is first of all, it's an honor that you trusted me with your story. It's an honor to be here to get to know you to mm-hmm. hear your stories. Uh, I too feel like I've lived a really fortunate existence in my 35 years so far so um, it's, it's moments like this that really mean a lot to me so thank you so much. Thank you Tim it's been a pleasure talking to you. Cheers Alright Voyagers that is a wrap on episode 241 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast that was really an incredible conversation I'm so fortunate that I was able to go out there and to see her home and to see her work and to share her story with all of you. So please check her out and her work online. There's some beautiful imagery of the dark elegy work on her website. And again, head on out to Montauk and check it out for yourself. There's a lot of cool stuff out there. When I come back at the end of the month, I'm going to be headed back out to Montauk in the East End to do a few cool conversations. I'm probably going to go to the North Fork too, to go to Greenpoint. Let's not uh, count our chickens before they hatch here. Okay, signing off. As always, please, please, please take care of each other. I will catch you all very, very soon.